Right now we're in for a bit of a treat because we'll be covering in really brief format the life of the single most important person who has ever graced the surface of our planet. And that's a bold claim, but with any proper examination of the impact of Jesus the Christ, it shows that his influence has resonated through the lives of billions upon billions of people. In some cases, people that were around even before he was born. And that's why right now you're listening to a presentation about a man who walked on this earth almost 2,000 years ago. And everyone knows something about Jesus, but it's impossible to know everything about him. When I say it's impossible to know everything, I, I'm not talking about what was his favourite colour or how he liked his eggs. I'm saying it's impossible to know all of the important stuff about Jesus because he was such and is such an incredible man who has lived such an astounding life. Now, if you wanted a brief historical summary of Jesus' life on earth, that's, that's easy. I mean, he was a Jew born in Bethlehem. He fled with his parents to Egypt. He later returned to Nazareth, where he became a craftsman. And at the age of around 30, he gave up his job and then he wandered around Israel, teaching the people for about three and a bit years. Then he was executed by the Romans at the behest of the, the Jewish authorities because they'd become fearful and jealous of the power and the following he was gathering. And that was the end. Or was it? Because the man John, one of his disciples, said this at the conclusion of the book that he wrote about Jesus. He said, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now John here is freely admitting that the book that he wrote and all the other books in the Bible, which were also about Jesus, are an inadequate and no matter how long and verbose they, they would be, they would always be inadequate. But the truly remarkable fact about Jesus' life was that even if you could somehow go back and capture all that he did in those three and a half years, that would still not be the end. Because, for example, the last two chapters of that book that John wrote were about the things that he did after he died. The amazing thing is that Jesus' story is still in progress, even as we are what you are watching this presentation. So where does that leave us? How can we possibly tackle a subject this monumental in a single sitting? Well, just as John did, we will, we will scratch the surface by briefly considering a few aspects of this man. And to do that, we're going to look at five particular characteristics of him. We're going to look at Jesus as the role as the, the son of God, we're going to see him as the son of man. We're going to examine how he was the priest, the high priest. And that segues nicely into how he became our saviour. And finally, we'll look at him as the king, Jesus the king. And there are, there are many more angles and details, but I, I hope that by just covering these key topics, we'll get a flavour of what Jesus is like and, and also we'll see how important he is to all of us. Now, if we turn to the Bible, when you look for the biblical description, you would think that you would only find him in the New Testament, because after all, that's where his birth is first recorded. Remarkably, though, as I alluded to a minute or two ago, he's found all through the Old Testament, indeed, through the entire Bible. And in some ways, the whole Bible is really the story of Jesus from beginning through to the end. Now, some of the well-known passages in the Old Testament about Jesus are the promises, the famous promises 
that God made to various great people of the Old Testament. And for tonight, one example is the promise that was given to the man King David, a great king of the early Israelite nation who was well loved by God. And what God promised to David was this. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now that promise was given, as I said, to King David, a man who lived hundreds of years before Jesus was born, which tells us that God had planned for a very long time to have a son. In fact, Revelation, the last book of the Bible, tells us that the existence of Jesus was planned from the very foundation, from the very beginning of the world. And if you look carefully enough for him, you will find the concept of Jesus quite easily right back in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. But for now, the important item to note from this particular verse is that the promise of David was that this person would be to God a son. So that was hundreds of years. If we come now to the New Testament, look at the actual birth of Jesus, we can see there that it has a lot more detail for us as well. Drawing from the record of Luke, it tells us that the angel Gabriel, God's messenger, told Mary this. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, reference back to the promise we just had then, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, that's a really full on four verses there. But for now, the key takeaway is that Jesus was conceived through the power of God. And it was done in a way which is closely parallels the traditional father-son relationship as was possible for the creator of the universe and the creator of Mary. And that's remarkable because if we were to go back to the book of Genesis that I referred to a little while ago, the first man that was created, Adam, was made from the dust of the ground. He was a handmade creation. He was like a, a piece of pottery that God formed. And it's very interesting in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, if you look at there, it talks about Adam being described as a, as a son of God. But if you look closely at the translation, it literally means he was of God. It doesn't say he was the son of God. It just says Adam of God. So it would actually be more accurate to translate that Adam was of God. And that's not quite the same thing as saying that he was the son of God, is it? And Eve... Likewise, she was a special creation as well. She was created through an exceptional process where God used a rib from Adam's side, which is in itself very interested in and, and loaded with sort of meaning and lessons for us, which we don't have time for tonight. But besides these two, Adam and Eve, everyone since then has been created through the, you know, the union of a man and a woman, a father and a mother. Now, when we come to Jesus, God could have created him in the same manner as he used for Adam or Eve. He, he could have done it like that, or he could have used some other exceptional process. But he didn't. 
because God wanted to make a distinction with Jesus. Jesus is the direct son of God. That's the word that Gabriel told Mary. The child was the son of God. Just like I have a son, so God has a son. It's a much closer relationship than the one that existed between Adam and God, or the relationship between God and you or I, at least in our natural state. And we can see that this this close father-son relationship, it continues in in this way that we see how Jesus and God interact through the rest of Jesus' time on the earth. And they had a special bond that shines through time and time again. And perhaps one of the most obvious examples is is when Jesus is baptised. Now, baptism is is a very important step in any believer's life. It's It's a huge moment for them. And we'll revisit that in the more detail later on. What happened for Jesus' baptism was that he went down to the Jordan to a man named John, another great man who who lived humbly in the shadow of Jesus. Now, John, he wasn't worthy to baptise Jesus. He said that himself. And and that wasn't the point, though, because there was none worthier than John to baptise Jesus. And Jesus needed to be baptised because he wanted to commit himself. He wanted to walk that path that his father had set before him. And he also wanted to provide an example to all of us. And while Jesus was being baptised, while Jesus was taking this big step, we know that God was there watching his beloved son take that that big momentous decision. And of course, we know God can see everything, so perhaps in some ways that's not that remarkable. But I like to think that at that moment, that God was paying just a little bit of extra attention. Because when Jesus rises up out of the water, the Spirit comes down, it's recorded for us, the Spirit comes down from heaven on Jesus like a dove, and God says something. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now that's the moment when Jesus comes out of the water, which Jesus basically says through his actions, I will go and I will do whatever it takes to serve you. And in response, if I may take the liberty of paraphrasing God, he says, well done, I love you. Do you know that the God, he spoke directly to people, I think it was three times in the whole of the Gospels. One at the Transfiguration, one near the end to acknowledge his son, and once here to say how proud he is of his little boy who's grown into such a wonderful man. Now, this interaction here, this, this relationship we see here, it's not an isolated example. Many times we have recorded that Jesus went to a quiet place to speak to his father in prayer. And even when he died on the cross, while he's there hanging on the cross, he was still talking to his father. And how you might say, because one of the things he's recorded as saying to us is that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that doesn't sound like a, a very loving thing to say to your dad, does it? Perhaps it's a sign that their relationship wasn't that strong after all. I mean, after all, who can blame Jesus? What kind of father refuses to intervene and save his son from such a horrible trial? Well, in this case, it was a father who loves you and I so much that he endured even that. But that's, again, a subject for another time. But getting back to those words that Jesus said, Jesus was quoting directly from Psalm 22. A psalm that although it starts with such despondent and and disheartening words as those that were cited by Jesus, it's a psalm that goes on to proclaim a steadfast faith in God. 
And so because of that, it was the perfect psalm to quote because it deals directly with a theme of experiencing dreadful distress and, and yet through it all there's this thread of faith and hope in redemption and salvation of God. And so when Jesus said those words, he wasn't rebuking his father, he wasn't giving up hope, he was confessing his faith and his love for his father right up to the very end. And there's one more um, little anecdote I want to draw out from Jesus' life on earth that again illustrates to us the closeness of their relationship. In John chapter 20, verse 17, it tells us about Mary Magdalene, a woman who Jesus loved very much. And she went to visit the tomb, and then unexpectedly, she found Jesus alive, which you know, was astounding. And when Jesus sees her in this miraculous sort of meeting that comes against all hope of expectations, he says something unusual to her. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, what I'm going to do here is indulge in a little speculation, but why do you think that Jesus wouldn't embrace anyone until after he ascended to his Father? Now, I suspect that maybe Jesus wanted his dad to be the first being that he embraced after his resurrection. Because remember, there had been this gulf between these two beings that loved each other so much, but due entirely to his human nature, it divided them. It was a cross that Jesus had to bear throughout his life, this separation from his father. And now that gulf is bridged by the plan of God and the obedience of Christ. And at long last, Jesus and God can embrace as father and son. I don't know, maybe I'm getting a bit soppy. And there is probably, there is quite likely another explanation, but it, this certainly could fit. Because I know, for one, you know, one of the first things I want to do when I get into the kingdom of God is to give Jesus a big hug, assuming he's okay with that. So I could see that Jesus would want to do the same with his father. Now, before we move on, though, to the next aspect of Jesus, there is a very big elephant in the room that I want to address because all of this talk of a father-son relationship seems to fly in the face of a very well-known doctrine called the Trinity. And in a nutshell, the Trinity sort of posits this idea that God and Jesus are the same entity and yet somehow not. And since that subject could well be a night of its own, I don't want to spend too long on it. But just quickly, we've just seen a close reading of the, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is the Son of God. There's this relationship between these two. He's not a part of God. That seems to be just contradictory. So when then, where then did this baffling idea that Jesus and God are one come from? Well, since Jesus mirrored God so closely in personality and was sent by God to represent him, the language at times can be fairly easily misunderstood. I'll give you an example. There's another well-known Old Testament reference to Jesus, and it comes from the book of Isaiah. It runs like this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the confusion here hinges on the word Emmanuel, which is translated as God with us. Now, some have misunderstood this 
to mean that Jesus was literally God with people in the sense that God and Jesus was God who somehow transformed himself into the form of a man or, or something along those lines. But that's not what that actually says, does it? First of all, Emmanuel is his name, not his nature. So it could mean something else uh, if we understand it more closely. I'll give you one example here. We've got Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul, in, in this passage, is, is encouraging the Romans by telling them that God is with them. And likewise, Jesus was an obvious manifestation that God was with mankind. God was supporting mankind by sending them his son. That's just one way you can see how Jesus was God with us. And that's not the only way to understand this passage as well. I mean, Jesus, as I mentioned, is a representative sent by God to show us what God is like. So in that way, he was also God with us. And so it's insightful for us to consider what Jesus said when the Jews actually accused him of calling himself God, because this actually happened. At one point in his ministry, the Jews were trying to make him publicly confess that he is the Christ. Ironically, the idea was that they could use that then as evidence to kill him. Uh, but this is how Jesus responds when they accuse him. Let's read it from John chapter 10, verses 33 to 36. It says there, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, which is to kill you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. This idea, we can see it's similar to the Trinity. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? Now, you might need to go over this verse a couple of times, because these verses a couple of times, it's a little bit confusing here. But the passage is very important because here the Jews are accusing Jesus of an idea similar to what the Trinity claims, that Jesus is calling himself God. And how does he respond to this accusation? Well, that verse that he talks about is actually from verse 82. Jesus quotes from there. He's quoting from Psalm 82, verse 6, where it says, You are gods, the sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, it's very important here that we understand what Jesus is referring to here, because he's actually using the word here, the word actually, Psalm 82 uses the word here, Elohim, which means mighty one or mighty ones, depending on whether it's plural. So that's a word that is sometimes or quite often used in connection with God, as makes sense. God is a mighty one, and also with his angels. And on occasion, though, it is used in another context, as it is in here, in connection with things like powerful people, such as the rulers. So by pointing this out to the Jews, what was Jesus really trying to communicate to them? Well, the point was relatively simple. The point is making that if sometimes mere men are called mighty ones or gods, the Elohim word, then that's in the Bible, then why, now why wouldn't he not do that? And what Jesus is pointing out is that we have to be very careful about distinguishing when the Bible is talking about the Lord God Almighty which is most clearly articulated in the word Yahweh, or other powerful beings like angels, or mighty rulers, or sometimes even again other words that refer to the same God Almighty. 
And Jesus does this because he himself, if we recall, he, he is a powerful being. He is the mightiest man that has ever lived. I mean, if you're going to compare Jesus to those rulers that were referred to in Psalm 82, he blows them away in comparison to, her, to them. So if you're going to call them Elohim, then Jesus certainly could be called Elohim and still not break the sense of the word. But note here that Jesus doesn't actually claim that title, perhaps because of the confusion that would create. So what he actually does is he explains that it would actually be okay for him to call himself Elohim and that it would still not be the same thing as calling himself Yahweh or the Almighty God. But then it's what he says in the next verse that really seals the deal. He says, sorry, I'll keep going. Oh, I missed a verse, sorry. I'll go back to it. He says, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? And what he's doing here is he pointed out that he never said that he was God. He only ever said that he was the son of God. And he points out also that he was sent by the father, which means he cannot be the father. And the accusation that the Jews is, is making is completely illogical. And by the same token, so is the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, Jesus is a mighty being. Yes, he has the thoughts and the spirit of his father in him, as he goes on to add later on in this chapter. But he is still, most importantly, the son of God. So we've covered off the, that sort of aspect of Jesus. So let's move on now and see about how Jesus is not only the son of God, but he is the son of man. Now, he was also the son of Mary, as we read quite some time ago. And that fact is incredibly significant for us. It means that Jesus has experienced both sides of the coin. He knows better than anyone what God is like, but he also knows what it's like to be human. And the title of Son of Man in the Bible, it's usually used in connection with regular people, people like you and I. But every now and again, it's also used in the connection in the Bible to remind us that Jesus is, in some ways, one of us. Now, a well-known example of that is from the book of Daniel. And it says there in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now that's a prophecy there that speaks to Jesus setting up his kingdom on earth. And we'll get to that a little bit more later on. But it's not the only reference there in the Old Testament as well that speaks to Jesus being, as we saw there, the Son of Man. And interestingly, even Jesus refers to himself as this title. He says, just prior to his crucifixion, Jesus was brought to the high priest of Israel, who had, in this case, no proof whatsoever that you know, would support a death penalty. And out of desperation, the high priest says to him, he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see 
the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's interesting, isn't it, there, that the, the high priests ask him if he's the Son of God. And in Jesus' reply, he says that you have said that I am. And instead of agreeing with him outright, Jesus implies that he's the Son of Man. And that one day that he would sit at the right hand of God. Now, everyone in that room knew their Old Testament. And they understood that the Son of Man in that context is the same person as the Son of God. And that was why the high priest went on to proclaim the statement was blasphemy and worthy of death. But the reason that Jesus and the Bible go to such lengths to make this important observation about Jesus' dual parentage is to remind us that Jesus is one of us. He's not someone who's aloof and, and above it all and untouched by infirmities. He knows what it's like to want to do the wrong thing. He knows how easy it is for us to be angry or tired or, or how tempting it is to want to be rich or powerful or even to hurt people in the pursuit of our own wants and needs. He knows because he went through it all himself while he lived out his 33 and a half years among us. Among us, one of us. And so, as the book of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, does that make you feel better? Maybe a little bit, you know, a bit dark, but, you know, if you know that Jesus suffered just as much as you or I do with his flawed humanity, does that make you feel a little bit better that he went through it too? That he yearned to say no to God, I don't want to die on the cross. Or I, I want to rule the world right now with my incredible gifts. Or I just want to do something for myself for a change. He, he went through all of that. He wasn't a superman. He wasn't you know, perfect in the sense that he wanted to do all the perfect things. He had to fight and struggle to do the right things. He's just the same as us. He wanted to sin. The only difference was that he didn't. Not even once. And that's why he's the son of man. But as we've just talked about then, it segues nicely into the next aspect of Jesus from the Bible. Jesus, the high priest. Because there was a reason that Jesus was subject to all of those infirmities of, of mankind. It was so that you know, we can empathize, empathize with him, but it was also so that he can empathize with us. And to explain this aspect of Jesus, we need some context. And to do that, we have to go right back to the beginning of the problem. Right back to the Genesis. Now, very briefly, when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden by disobeying God's command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they created a rift between God and humankind. And in the process, they became mortal, dying beings. And that's why we find ourselves in this perilous situation we do today. And the fundamental problem that the sin of Adam and Eve created was that God is perfect. And he cannot, he cannot endure sin. He cannot tolerate sin. So while people continue to sin, God and humankind cannot be reconciled. And that, that might seem harsh. But it's only because we're the flawed ones who want to bring down God to our level. And that's why it seems harsh. 
because our standards are so low. But without getting too deeply into the subject, God had a plan for what he knew would happen right from the very beginning. He knew this was this is why Jesus was planned right from the beginning. And this plan was brilliant because it found a way for God to lift us up, flawed and broken old us, lift it up to his level. And at its heart, the plan was relatively simple. But there are many layers to God's genius. And one of the components that God taught us about this reconciliation process was an institution called the priesthood. Now, the Old Testament and the people of Israel, they were created as a historical tool to teach us more about how God's plan was going to be executed. And in the law given to the Israelites in the Old Testament, the priests were a special people, a special tribe that were chosen, or a special part of a tribe that were chosen and set apart by God to serve both him and the people. And they had many tasks as a part of this special role. They were, they were there to teach the people the laws of God. They were there to you know, care for God and through the caring of his temple and you know, carrying out the sacrifices and doing all those kinds of duties. But at the end of the day, the purpose, the motive, the reason for the existence of the priests was to act as intermediaries between the people and God. And there was a good reason for that, because we are in desperate need of an intermediary. And it's insightful for us to pause for a moment and consider just how the Israelites reacted when they first met God, his presence, for the first time, even from afar. Now, it happened, they, they came out, they were drawn out of Egypt by God's miracles and the, the ten plagues and Moses' mighty works through God's power. And they had left the land of Egypt and they were not long in the wilderness. And then the presence of God descended on Mount Sinai. And this is how it describes their reaction was. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. All the people trembled. And these people were not wimps. They're hardened slaves who've seen the plagues, who've crossed the Red Sea, had seen all sorts of miracles, and yet they were terrified. And rightly so. We easily forget in this mundane age it focuses so heavily and exclusively on the love of God that the same God who loves us is also an awesome and mighty God who can snuff out all of creation in a heartbeat. That is the being that we are dealing with here. And when you're dealing with someone like that, who frankly is so far beyond us and our understanding, our strength, our, our general frame of reference, we need an intermediary. It makes perfect sense to have someone to stand between us, to help us connect with this being that is so high above us. But yet the priests of Israel, the Israelites, the, the intermediaries chosen by the law of God, they were only people like you and I. And that made them fallible and flawed, like you and I. And so although they may have tried their best, they often did a poor job. Sometimes they even did a terrible job. And that's perhaps best exemplified by the high priest, who ironically was the one who condemned the Son of God to death, as we saw in our verses just a little while ago. And the reality is that the human priesthood was never and will never be able to properly bridge the gulf between God and ourselves. What they were really meant to do was to bring our attention to the need for that 
and the problem that we face through our shortcomings and theirs. And that's what brings us back to Jesus. Because on one hand, as I said earlier, he experienced all the ups and downs of human existence, which made him well-placed to understand our situation. And he also taught us through his example and lessons exactly as God intended what, what we should, how we should live our lives. And that was what the priesthood was for, remember. But on the other hand, he also never sinned, which permits him to go and speak to God. He is the only one in all of the history of creation that can adequately fulfill the role of a mediator between God and humankind. And furthermore, since he's immortal now, he's able to do this role indefinitely. Now, for anyone who's recently read Hebrews, this will all sound very familiar. Let's just look at a quick passage from there. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. For surely it is not angels, this is Jesus, um, that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high, high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. None of this is an accident. God deliberately planned for Jesus to fulfill this role since the foundation of the world. And as part of this intermediary role, Jesus is going to be able to, he will sit in judgment on all of humankind because he knows. Jesus knows and he understands both humanity and divinity. And so he is able to sit in judgment and fairly represent both parties. And that is why when the judgment comes, it will be Jesus who decides with mercy and justice whether we will be given the gift of eternal life or not. And explains this in, in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. But there's more to this story than a man who can who see both sides of the coin. Because at the end of the day, having a, a judge who can sit and judge humankind and understand why humankind fails, it doesn't really help us. If someone judges between God and us using only justice, then the result is entirely predictable. We'll all die. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, no matter who we are. We deserve death. Even, you know, even Gandhi, even Mother Teresa, they deserve to die. The only exception, exception to this rule was Jesus. And once more, Jesus is the crux of the solution. Because going back to the Old Testament once more, there were the lessons in there in the law that taught us that the price of sin is death. The sacrifices, the thousands of sheep and goats and bulls and birds that were sacrificed as part of the law, they were not there to satisfy some bloodlust from God. They were instituted to teach us that the sin of all of us deserves death. There's no escaping it. Sin, death. 
But once more, the sacrifices in the law, like the priests, were a poor substitute for the real thing. A bull or a sheep or a bird you know, dying as a consequence for something that you or I have done, that's not justice. You or I deserve to die. Not, not Bessie, not Lambert. They didn't do anything wrong. But even if you wanted to up your game, even if you tried to you know, decide that if a human being you know, died, or sinned rather, then a human being deserved to die, then you still have a problem. Firstly, you have the problem that it's not someone else's fault that you did something wrong, so killing them in your stead doesn't really make sense. But even if you can get past that particular problem, the other person already deserves to die. They've already done something wrong, and so sacrificing them cannot balance your scales, it's only balancing their scales. In fact, as we know, that's called murder if we kill someone else for our own sins, which it only makes you more guilty, doesn't it? But let's do a little you know, experiment, a thought experiment here. If you could find a sinless human being, then that at least takes you a step closer, doesn't it? Because at least you could solve the second part of the problem. At least you've found someone who you basically could die for your sins. And some people are under the impression that that's enough. Especially when you look at a couple of verses in the Bible in isolation, such as this one from Isaiah chapter 53, where it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, if you take that passage literally and in isolation, you might think that God's justice runs a little bit like this. You deserve a beating, but I'm going to give it to Jesus instead. You deserve to die, but I'm going to kill Jesus instead. But is that justice? That's like saying, well, officer, sorry, officer, you caught me speeding. Um, I'm guilty, but... If I can find someone else who didn't speed or hasn't ever sped, and can you just find them instead of me, and then we'll be even? I mean, that doesn't stack up in you know, the, the human courts, let alone the divine court of justice. But fortunately, God found a better way, a way that actually makes sense. And in Romans, we read this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. We're back. We're back at baptism. I told you it was important. Because the solution then is not that Jesus died as a substitute for us. The solution is that we die as we ought to, at least symbolically, through baptism. And then through the miracle of Jesus' sinless life and through baptism, we are reborn into the life of Jesus. Baptism into Christ is the key. And Galatians puts this you know, very succinctly and very plainly. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as, as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. Now Jesus was the only one through, who through his faith and his life deserved life. And so God through his wonderful plan found a way for us to die symbolically and through this death to be associated with the one who could rightfully live forever with God. And so it's incredible that God found this way to save us despite our sinful nature 
without compromising himself or his principles. And that is the miracle and the power of God, that he can find a way to save people like you and I. That's why he's so incredible. But as wonderful as this salvation is, there is even more. There's a reason why God did this. And it wasn't just so he could save the Lord, you and I. He saved us because he has a plan for us. And once again, as you guessed it, Jesus features very heavily in this plan. And this is the last aspect I want us to consider today, which is about Jesus as the king. And it's ironic that uh, towards the end of his life on earth, shortly before he was crucified, he was brought before the Roman ruler Pilate. And Pilate interrogated Jesus and asked him, due to the accusations of the Jews who said that Jesus claimed to be the king, he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? This question seemed to have caught Jesus a little bit off guard because Jesus asked Pilate, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to, about me? And Pilate in, the, in John chapter 18, he actually evades that question and instead deflects it to mention that the, G, the Jews were Jesus' people and they were the ones who were bringing him to kill them. But the important thing for us now is what Jesus says next. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting now that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is not the king of the Jews in the strict sense of the word. And he never claimed to be that. He is, as he's saying here, the king of another world. A world that's not here yet. He's not the king yet of this world. And to find that kingdom that Jesus speaks of, we need to turn to the prophecies of the Bible, the parts that haven't yet been fulfilled because many of them already have. And we, we can turn there to the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is a complicated book filled with imagery and symbolism. But some parts are still fairly straightforward because of the, uh, the nature of the, con of, the, of the subject. And in Revelation 19, we're told about the return of the king. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. And it says there, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in Revelation we are introduced to Jesus as the king. Not the king of the Jews, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he looks a little bit different this time, doesn't he, than what we see in the Gospels. Whereas before he came as a, a meek and humble man, when he returns, he's coming back to pour out the wrath of God on mankind. He's coming to conquer and rule the earth. And this is the time the Jews will finally see Jesus as they expected him as a ruler, a man who will overpower all who stand in their way. 
But as fearful and, and as his passage is, there is a purpose to the conquest. He's not coming back to, you know, as an oppressor or a tyrant. The end goal of, of, as Revelation goes on to say, is that the earth will be restored and be perfected. And if we just look at one verse, perhaps very quickly, a page or two later in, in Revelation, it says in Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And so the goal is that peace and justice will fill the earth from that time until eternity. And this, this part, this kingdom, is where Jesus once again becomes important for you and I, because we have a choice. He can be our king. We can be a part of that kingdom because God has saved us so that we can be like him. And God's plan involves Jesus' rule in this world, but the subjects aren't to be serfs and slaves, but brothers and sisters of Jesus, adopted through baptism. The idea is the, the population of earth will be the family of God. And that is why there is a plan to save us, not so that we can persist in our current state, our current fallible, flawed and suffering sinful state, but basically to save us, not just from death, but from ourselves. The plan is to transform us, to be like Jesus, who is himself like God. And that is the ultimate solution for our problem, to be like God. But that's the catch, isn't it? If we want to remain as we are now, then the result will inevitably be death. This current form cannot persist. But if we have the humility to want to become like God, then there is a hope for something much greater through baptism and following Christ's example. But don't be deceived. It's not like we're turned into automatons or carbon copies of Jesus or God. We can see that you know, Jesus, even after his resurrection, shows his independence, his personality, his behaviour. We're not being eradicated. We're being improved. And that is a wonderful hope that we have as well. So we're out of time. And we've covered a lot of ground. But just to recap, we've covered lots of different aspects of Jesus. We've seen him as the son of God, the son of man, the priest, the saviour and the king. And as I mentioned right back at the start, we have only scratched the surface on a subject that could fill a thousand lives. We could consider Jesus as the word of God that came up in Revelation. We could, we could see how he's a brother to all of us or how he's the lamb of God or the bridegroom. There's... there's He's literally the most diverse and interesting person that has ever existed. But I think that what we've seen in our whirlwind tour is that Jesus is integral to all of us. He's integral to everything that, you know, that actually matters. I mean, he's been part of God's plan right from the beginning. He's, he's the cornerstone or the capstone that God is, is building his plan on. He's the one that has saved all of us. So what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us that he's the most important person in our lives. Without exception, the most important person in our lives is Jesus. And that is why we must spend the time to look into this one book that we do have, even though John said there could have been millions, but we have one book and we need to read that from start to finish to understand it, to get to know this person, this incredible man, who has done so much for us and is coming back 
to save us if only we will let him.